Welcome to MAP, the bi-weekly market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. Mars makes it as easy as possible for you to get your pharmaceutical, medtech or digital health product to the market and of course get the price it deserves. My name is Stefan Walzer, I'm the founder of Mars and a health economist by training and working in the fields of market access, reimbursement, pricing and health economics already since 2004. And now let's learn about the market access and reimbursement systems around the globe. Digital healthcare in the United States, I think um, when I first started to think about it, I think it was a quite clear direction. I think um, should have been very clear, at least to me, that digital health applications are already used and will be even further used in the US since probably many years. Um, obviously, this is also driven by the perception of the big, let's say, companies such as Apple, Microsoft, uh, Google, etc. And they have as well very strong healthcare, let's say, departments or even kind of um, smaller companies around them. However, I think important, and that is also what we'll discuss later on with different experts from the US, um, the, I think, reality in general also from a reimbursement perspective might be different. I think in general, quite clearly, uh, many North American companies and innovators are engaged in the development of apps, websites, platforms, I think with different directions, supporting patients, caregivers, providers. I think this is very clear. And we see that, I think, in our day-to-day life, also with the different kind of examples and very innovative kind of products. Also here now, with the DIGA kind of system, I think we see that a lot of interest is well coming out of those companies based in the US. I think the potential kind of benefits are quite clear. I think we would not need to discuss about it. However, I think it's also very important um, that besides those kind of, let's say, factors driving interest in those digital health applications, the Affordable Care Act and other healthcare reforms which have shifted the emphasis towards value in care delivery providing an incentive to deliver cost-effective prevention and management of chronic diseases will as well support or hopefully support then the uptake of such kind of digital health applications. I think it's also important quite clearly, maybe we can as well discuss that very briefly, how and in which ways potentially the kind of Biden administration might have now an impact. I think most importantly, probably, it's at least no more such a kind of big discussion on the Affordable Care Act and the potential stop of that. I think independent of the quite clear benefits, I think what we have at least heard from different US experts is that digital health application or digital health therapeutics, let's say, have not yet had a real bigger and significant impact on patient care service delivered in the US. Let's maybe give a very brief overview. And again, we try to compare that maybe a bit, uh, even though that these systems are very different between the US and quite clearly Germany and other European countries, but I think it's still worthwhile to have a look for that. I think firstly, I think from what is known, there is as well a growing level of interest in providing safe and appropriately regulated access to those kind of health solutions in the US. And I think also here again, that is being driven and also handled by the FDA in the United States, which is, I think, also, let's say, quite similar to the DIGA process where a regulatory authority in Germany, it's the BFAM, it has taken over this kind of 
um, endeavor and decision making. I think there are two main pathways for those digital health applications. One is the 510k pathway, um, which is totally basically more used and known as well for medical devices. And it's also the kind of pathway for new drug applications, um, which is mainly and normally being used for drugs. I think those might as well be um, good and interesting kind of further insights maybe from our experts to understand how this and what are the cool kind of drivers with those pathways and how they would potentially even fit then to the digital health uh, therapeutics. So finally, before we come basically then to, to also the, the, the discussion, right? I mean, a core question is always the kind of financial flow, the source of revenue. I mean, at the end of the day in Europe, it's quite clear it's reimbursement, um, but also in the US, I think it might be seen a bit broader and a bit wider. So I think first of all, there's always the opportunity of direct to consumer marketing. And I think currently, I think there's also evidence that around, let's say, um, a fifth of the um, of those kind of companies providing such healthcare solutions, digital healthcare solutions, um, are marketing their kind of um, products directly to the consumers, or they at least plan to do so. I think this is already quite impressive number, which would also show already a bit that there might be maybe even maybe even a higher willingness to pay for such kind of uh, devices or products from U.S. Um, patients. Another one besides direct to consumers, maybe employer sponsorship. It's important. This is a big differentiation, obviously, to Europe. US employers typically incur significant healthcare costs for their employees. And those companies that have a self insured plan, again, nothing what we exactly know in Europe, but it's something to keep in mind. Um, where the employees contract with an insurance company to manage a healthcare plan, but covers all costs directly, have a particular interest in containing the cost of prevalent chronic diseases. So this might be an interesting kind of pathway, obviously. And I think, for example, in areas like um, mental uh, disease areas or insomnia or um, anything else which have especially a major impact, for example, on the employer's, uh, let's say, payment terms or absenteeism, for example, by those patients might as well be taken over by employers. And I think that's as well a kind of shift in mindset here. There needs to be a quite clear um, saving, for example, a cost saving, but could also be a saving in the, in, in the circumstance or the environment that the um, employer could have, or let's say maybe even minimize the, the absenteeism with those patients. A third option is quite clear, and this is then again more going to lead, let's call it the traditional kind of coverage, what we know from a European perspective, is hospital and healthcare system coverage. So I think this is an opportunity. I think this is maybe a kind of viable approach. I think it's also quite clear that the evidence would need to as well show then quite clearly the uh, outcomes for that. And I think here, I think we can as well further discuss it um, with some of the experts. A fourth option, I think this is probably a bit broader, pharmaceutical partnership. This is probably not so much dedicated only to the US, but sometimes there might be also interest by pharmaceutical companies um, uh, which might maybe want to have and develop products that complement conventional drug therapies. Um, I think this is as well a viable 
approach. Finally, we're going as one well to the kind of, let's say, call it more coverage or reimbursement areas. I think one is the health insurance coverage. And here, for example, a recent decision resource group survey of different pharmacies uh, and, and therapeutics uh, committee members, so P&T committee members, uh, was basically finding that 25% currently provide coverage for some digital therapeutics, an additional 45% are interested, are interested in providing that coverage. I think those are not too bad, those numbers, I think, which might as well show maybe the kind of interest. But I think also quite clearly this might maybe um, correlate as well a bit with the available evidence so far. But I think generally, I think the interest is there, but it's still the open question why, let's say, the uptake is still quite low, at least what we know from here. It's maybe, again, a good question when we come to the our experts into the detailed discussions. Um, Medicare is even a bit more difficult. Medicare, that's just for all of the European listeners, right? The, the health plan for elderly Americans does not currently cover digital health therapeutics due to the legislation. So this might be maybe a question because current legislation does not simply define the treatments Medicare can cover in which then those digital health applications could really fall into. So here may be a good question if also the Biden administration might want to change that in the future. So I think these are the kind of core uh, let's see, pathways potentially in the United States with respect to, let's call it in a broader sense, coverage or funding of digital health applications. And there's still a lot of open questions. I think one is still the kind of um, regulatory pathway with the FDA, similar to BFA maybe, are those drivers as well similar. But I think more interestingly, I think is quite clearly how could it be really um, systematically be covered by the different, let's say, healthcare plans or let's say different kind of coverage options we have, whether it's employers, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, whether it's private plans or anything else we have just simply covered. Looking forward to great discussions today with two experts from the US. One is Kate Klassens. Kate is a strategic advisor at Applied Policy in the US. She's a registered nurse with extensive U.S. health policy experience within the public and private sectors, which makes it obviously even more interesting in terms of discussions. The majority of her career has been with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where she served in a variety of roles, including the Office of the Secretary, the Healthcare Financing Administration, and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. After she left the federal government... Kate worked for the Blue Cross Shield, furthering her expertise on federal, strategic, and regulatory healthcare issues. Nowadays, she is a consultant in the area of health policy, so looking forward to her. Our second guest for this very special episode today is Anna Forces. She is a co-founder of Purple Squirrel Economics, again in the US. It's a consultancy in the health economic and health technology assessment area. Besides different roles in the industry, she's also an adjunct health economic professor at the Long Island University College of Pharmacy, a guest lecturer at Rutgers University Business School, and a frequent contributor to forums, articles, and conference addressing healthcare value and access, obviously and especially on the and with the US focus. So thank you, Kate, for 
the time to speak with us as well about and around digital health applications um, in the US. Um, I mean, we know that I think there's quite some activities ongoing in Europe. I think there's a new kind of pathway in Belgium just being launched, I think, a couple of weeks or months ago. I think Germany as well, uh, basically, um, on that front since 2020. And also, for example, in France, I think uh, more and more digital health applications might at least be applied through the standard reimbursement process. Um, if we turn a bit into the U.S., Would you generally agree that digital health applications are not yet really accepted by stakeholders in the U.S. system? Um, or maybe you disagree, but in any way, I think the rational of your answer would be great. Okay, sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, so I think my answer uh, would have been different uh, prior to March 2020. Um, you know, I think digital health applications and technologies really have been around for a couple of decades in the US, but really their application development and really importantly, their adoption really has been hampered by government policy, lack of reimbursement, and really a lack of initiative um, to advance any changes. But I think this has changed uh, with the pandemic because stakeholders really uh, had no other choice than to turn to different digital health applications. Um, you know, non-COVID-19 healthcare really migrated to digital platforms, I think, over the last 12 months. So mHealth, Health IT, telehealth, telemedicine. Um, I think providers were forced to really rapidly adapt um, so that they could continue giving uh, care during the pandemic. Um, you know, I read recently in, in the US more changes in the adoption of remote healthcare and digital health apps occurred in the first 20 days of March. Um, more than the previous 20 years, just to meet uh, what was happening during the crisis. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I really don't think stakeholders have had much of a choice not mm. to accept digital health applications. Mm. Um, I also think, you know, part of the stakeholder community is insurers and regulators And they really did move. They had no choice but to move to uh, develop interim solutions for payment, for telehealth, for digital apps, um, to setting up governance programs to protect confidentiality. Yeah. Um, and um, as I'll talk about later, you know, the federal regulations that have hampered digital health apps, I think, um, really were eased hmm. during the public health emergency almost immediately. Okay. So I don't know yeah. if that answers your question. No, absolutely. I mean, um, it, it, it probably shows as well, I think, um, as probably in, probably also in most of the countries that I think the, the kind of pre-COVID times were clearly different. Um, even though that, let's say in Germany, at least, I think the whole kind of legal frame was already even put together before uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic was really hitting the, Uh, yeah, the globe probably. I mean, you brought as well already something maybe as well importantly into the discussion, I think was more the kind of, let's say, 
call it regulatory pathway, because it's also obviously one of the stakeholders, um, maybe before even the reimbursement. Can you also uh, describe the regulatory pathway for new kind of digital health applications? I mean, you you mentioned apps, but there's obviously a lot more like telemonitoring, et cetera, um, in the US. And also maybe um, quickly touching base as well on the core drivers for a positive decision around those pathways. Sure. Um, so I think the regulatory pathway is for a digital technology um, is going to depend on, um, you know, what the technology is. So is it a brand new, never been seen before de novo technology, or is it something where um, there already is something that's pretty much substantially equivalent to use the CMA, uh, FDA term. Um, so I think that's going to you know, play a large part. So how novel is the technology? Um, how much of a risk does it pose? Should it malfunction, for example? Um, so I think, so you'd have a substantial equivalence pathway, you'd have a bigger hurdle with something brand new that um, would go through a de novo approval uh, pathway. I mean, that could even require a developer to uh, conduct an RCT. So um, I think, though, no matter, you know, if it's one of those, there's always the ability for FDA to exercise what's called enforcement discretion which basically waives regulatory oversight if um, it decides a product is very low risk. For example, apps um, that aim to prevent diabetes um, by helping people change their diet and exercise, those can be marketed in the US um, without providing safety and efficacy evidence to FDA. Um, there's the Breakthrough Device Program, which is a voluntary program um, and FDA started this to speed access um, to certain devices, but still, you know, maintaining a review process. So if you have a technology that's um, designated a breakthrough de designation, they're going to be ones that offer more effective treatment, um, diagnose life-threatening um, or debilitating diseases. Um, there's no approved alternative for it, significant advantages over existing therapies. Um, you know, an FDA provides a very good overview of what exactly is required on their um, website. Um, so, and I also think that it's important to mention that FDA's regulation of software, um, you know, is dependent on the type of device. So is it software as a medical device or is it in conjunction with the medical device, which is known as software in a medical device? So, you know, I think that depending on what the software function is, um, you know, that's going to also impact how quickly or slowly um, something could get approved. Yeah, I mean, in, interestingly, and I mean, if if I understand correctly, those pathways were basically already available even before the pandemic, right? Correct. So the incentive, let's say, to maybe not even launch a digital health application before the pandemic was probably more the kind of issues or question marks around the reimbursement. 
Correct. It's actually a really, uh, it's something I was going to mention because FDA is um, very much ahead of, of CMS, mm-hmm. um, which is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So the largest payer of health care in the United States, the federal government. Um, and CMS has really lagged behind um, in advancing these technologies. And I think that has absolutely been um, what has, you know, hindered its development in the United States. Definitely. Yeah, interesting. I think also my understanding is is really that I think the Medicare regulation is or the legislation around it, I think would also not allow uh, the reimbursement coverage of such digital health application because of, I think, the definition of the treatments. That's at least what I heard. Is, Is that correct? Well, it's uh, a tricky. So the Medicare statute, um, the Social Security Act, actually doesn't directly address coverage of digital health technologies. And it does not specifically limit or prohibit coverage of them within the in the program. Where the limitations come in are how CMS implements the statute through regulations. So in other words, how CMS interprets the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and those regulations really haven't had a full systemic update or modernization to address digital health technologies. And that has definitely impacted access and coverage. Um, but I, I will note that um, as soon as the public health emergency started uh, last March, um, the administration lifted barriers um, and you know, ex- made uh, exemptions for different regulations. And then we saw a lot more um, digital technology um, getting paid for through different um, methods. So alternative payment uh, methodologies. But you know, even like with continuous glucose monitors, um, which I would consider digital health technology, those do fit into a benefit category, um, but they only got put into that benefit category in 2017. um, And that's called durable medical equipment. So they have been able to get coverage and payment, but absolutely um, it is is a, a reason why I think it hasn't taken off there. Wow, very interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, as you ex- explained it now, also, I think uh, the current kind of coverage is probably also due to the kind of exemptions around the pandemic, right? Correct. So, it, Correct. do you think that this might change then also over time? Maybe also with the new Biden administration. Well, I, I mean, I think the Biden administration has a lot on its plate, um, but I, I think there were already. Um, certain proposals out there by CMS. For example, um, before um, Biden took office, there was a proposal to provide uh, Medicare coverage of innovative technologies. That uh, regulation, which is typical when a new administration comes in, is sort of in purgatory or limbo right now. Um, it, I, I don't see any reason why it won't get finalized. Um, And then there's the commission that advises Congress, which is called MedPAC, 
um, in the U.S., uh, they met and they agree that digital health uh, telemedicine is here to stay, and they are going to advise Congress to work to develop policies that would allow them to permanently move forward. I mean, right now the public health emergency ends, um, I think April 21st, Mm -hmm. it may well be extended again, um, giving more time for that to happen. But I I do think if they can't um, quote unquote fix this or address it through regulatory processes, um, legislation would be necessary um, to clearly stipulate um, that this should be covered and, you know, then CMS can figure out the details under that, but to really address it in statute, which it is not right now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Perfect. Um, maybe changing a bit the gears here. Um, if we now, let's say, have a bit of a focus on the inpatient setting, so hospitals, right? I mean, we're all aware that, I mean, in the, especially in the US, you have a lot of different payer ties, but I think just for, uh, let's say this discussion, I mean, if we could focus a bit on the hospital setting, um, what are the kind of potential pathways for digital health application? And I mean, especially in the hospital setting, that might be telemonitoring, there might be digital apps, there could be a lot of different kind of digitalization happening, right? I mean, what are the kind of reimbursement um, options or coverage options, maybe payment options, when I would have an app and uh, basically think as a company to move over into the hospital market in the US? Sure. Well, so Medicare has over a dozen different payment systems. uh, And in the hospital, it's called the inpatient perspective payment system where basically um, when a a beneficiary or patient is admitted to the hospital, there is a prospective payment bundle for that DRG or that uh, payment, you know, uh, dependent on the severity of the major um, additional diagnoses that patient has. So basically um, diagnostic tests, health apps are not separately covered in the inpatient setting. So um, I think you have to look at what is the value proposition a, a specific technology is going, will bring to that hospital. So what basically you have to show as the developer, what's the advantage of your technology. So are there better uh, outcomes of the patient? Are there reduced lengths of stay? Because Medicare hospitals have a publicly available database called Medicare Compare where um, beneficiaries can go on and look at, you know, um, how many people get readmitted because of MRSA or how many people, um, get out of the hospital quicker at a certain hospital. So a hospital has an incentive itself to look at a technology and say, yes, we're going to adopt that in our hospital. And either they pay the developer themselves for that technology and they reap the benefits of it by having patients stay less or not get readmitted. Um, I think for payers really, you know, and I think there are opportunities too outside of Medicare with private payers um, to look at um, options where you get into a partnership um, 
you know, with a payer and a developer where they look at, okay, this technology really um, made a difference in how the doctor or provider treated that patient. And that's called clinical utility. And that's the most important thing from a payer perspective um, that a device or application can have. So um, I don't know if that's, you know, helpful, but I, I think that, you know, in this inpatient setting, um, you have to look outside of the perspective bundle and consider other ways. And, you know, I do that for different clients now too. We look at, you know, how does this really um, speed up the delivery of care for a patient um, and it can have a real big value proposition for hospitals. Yeah, no, I, I can understand that. I mean, and, I mean, from background, I'm, I'm an economist. So I think um, to me, this sounds very much that I think especially also, let's say, competition is driving those kind of incentives to potentially then cover a digital health application, right? Whether it's a, a hospital versus other hospitals, I think very interesting, the transparency also on readmissions, infection rates, et cetera. But I think also from what you have said, um, the competition between especially then the private payers, right? Yes. Uh, I mean, these commercial payers, you know, generally um, – why we focus on Medicare is because their policies are publicly available, whereas private payers don't have to make their policies public. But generally, commercial payers are going to follow Medicare's lead. But I think it's fair to say that they have been um, more active, although CMS has developed certain things like the Center for Innovation. Um, there are uh, positive steps, but commercial payers are testing and integrating, I think, more digital health technology um, and exploring um, what they can do for their members, um, you know, that might reduce their premiums or overall costs or give better outcomes. Um, I know that um, technologies that address cost drivers um, like readmissions, um, you know, or utilization within a hospital of more services, comorbidities, um, that those are what commercial payers are looking at when they're approached and they can be approached by developers. And I think, you know, always thinking you have to go to the Medicare program or the government is something also that developers should think about, you know, think outside the box and say, well, maybe I could do a partnership um, with a um, payer in the US, a, a commercial payer, as opposed to Medicare, and then sort of back into the Medicare coverage and payment. Yeah, that's that sounds like a very good kind of idea, absolutely. Um, maybe with the kind of, uh, let's say, probably kind of last final words in that kind of discussion. Um, if you look now back to maybe the kind of Medicare setting, also the private payers, but especially maybe in the inpatient setting, what we have just discussed, are there any kind of learnings or maybe even recommendations? You would say these could be maybe taken as well to other healthcare systems in Europe, maybe also to Germany. Yeah, I mean, I think that the problem with Medicare is it has these siloed payment systems 
Um, so it's different than having, say, a global budget. There's a payment system for every different um, type of service, inpatient, outpatient, ambulatory, surgical, durable medical equipment, um, end-stage renal disease, every, um, you know, and as I said, there's over a dozen of, of these payment systems. And I think that <clears throat> that, you know, is a challenge to address. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think in countries where there is a global budget, there might be, um, you know, a, it might be a little bit less onerous uh, to get into that market. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that was really, I think, very helpful. So, yeah, thank you for your insights. I think that is uh, very helpful also the kind of comparison. Also, I mean, it shows the kind of differences, again, between absolutely. the U.S. system and a lot of systems in Europe. Thank you very much, Kate. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Good. Thank you, Karen and Anna, for also getting to such a kind of discussion via this episode of our podcast today. Um, with a special kind of issue on DGAS or digital health applications in, in a broader sense in the United States. Um, from my understanding, I think digital health applications are not yet really accepted by stakeholders in the U.S. system. Would you agree to that or do you think uh, this is maybe a wrong perception from my side? Um, I think part of that depends on who you define as the stakeholders so if we look at a few different stakeholders, I think that the situation is different for each of them. So from the traditional market access perspective, of course, you might think about payers. Um, and in that case, I think you're right that we're not quite there yet. So payers are seeing some challenges in how to cover digital therapeutics. So, you know, payers, yes, I'd say that there's still a lot of work to do in terms of figuring out how to cover digital therapeutics. Um, if we look at some other stakeholders, so for example, physicians or hospitals, healthcare providers, they're, they're interested. I'd say there's some growing interest. And of course, it always comes down to who's going to pay for the app. Mm. So there are a number of um, hospitals and healthcare systems that are piloting programs where you know it's a little bit more of a research pilot study. Often it's in collaboration with the app developer. Uh, to sort of, you know, see how it works, gain some evidence and establish how these apps would work in the real world setting. I think that if, um, if it can be shown that the hospital providing um, a digital app to patients is effective and can overall reduce costs and improve outcomes, that there may be some interest in the part of the actual healthcare providers in, um, you know, moving forward digital therapeutics. Another area that may be somewhat unique to the U.S. is that employers are very interested in, um, in how they can get behind digital therapeutics. Um, and there are two reasons for that. I mean, one is employers, of course, want their workers to show up and be able to work a full day, not be absent, not have unexpected absences. So kind of just general, you know, workforce issues is one aspect. The second is, of course, that in the US, employers cover many of their employees' health insurance policies. And so it's in the employer's interest to keep those healthcare costs down. So there's actually a good number of especially larger US companies that are 
looking at providing some of the digital therapeutics apps um, outside of the regular health insurance plan as sort of a wellness benefit. And that's probably more on the side of the apps that are, you know, weight management, smoking cessation, insomnia, um, diabetes management. So things like this, not the sort of very specific prescription therapeutics, but more on that kind of lifestyle and overall wellness side that, for example, with a diabetes app is relatively low cost and this affects a large proportion of, of a large company's uh, workers. And that could be a win-win if, you know, if the workers are able to come to work, they're not missing for a lot of appointments, they're not having emergencies where they have to call out of work, then having that better management of diabetes through an app really benefits the, it benefits the employee, it benefits the employer, and it also benefits the, the healthcare payer at the same time if everybody's having their diabetes managed better. Um, and then of course, you know, patients themselves as a stakeholder in digital therapeutics in the US, they, they could pay for an app themselves. Um, I think that that's gonna be challenging if, if it's, you know, a very kind of low level wellness app. There may be some people who are willing to pay out of pocket for that but these are probably not the most kind of effective, you know, full interventions in terms of healthcare. I think that as we get into the more, you know, therapeutic of the digital apps, um, people are probably less willing to pay, you know, out of pocket because the cost is probably going to go up. Um, so I don't really see patients as, as being a, you know, major pathway moving this technology forward. Um, and then, of course, there's always pharma. Um, and so, you know, in some cases, an app might have a natural fit with a conventional drug. So, for example, you know, coming back to diabetes, if, um, if a company is manufacturing a drug for diabetes, they might have some interest in partnering with one of these diabetes management apps in order to, you know, provide that kind of overall management for the patient. And it can also help to be a good source of real world evidence and um, understanding outcomes, you know, based on patient compliance to medication, as well as how well they're um, managing other aspects of the disease. So, yeah, I'd say that, you know, we're, we're making progress. There are a lot of different stakeholders in the U.S. and the payers are probably the ones who are the, the most interested and, and concerned about identifying ways to, to move ahead with this. Okay, perfect. I think that was a very good kind of overview. And it also shows already how complex the whole kind of U.S. healthcare system really is. Um, if I maybe focus now a bit on the, let's call it payer system. I mean, we all know, and I think you have nicely just explained as well, the different kind of pathways there. Um, I think the U.S. has a very heterogeneous kind of payer system, but maybe Anna, you could maybe as well respond to that kind of question um, in which payer type would you maybe think is the best applicable to cover digital health applications in the future also given the kind of information and the kind of current situation uh, currently existing in the US uh, yeah so the reimbursement pathway uh, depends more on not what the payer type is, but actually we have to start, go back and start with what, what is the definition 
of the digital therapeutics. And according to the 2019 FDA guidelines, uh, there are different types. So and it is very important because the pathways for reimbursements are different, quite different. So is this a, a digital therapeutics that it is an extension of a medical device or prescriptional treatment? So it's uh, it comes with that? Or is that a software that by itself is a clinical treatment? Uh, a We may even say a replacement therapy that potentially will compete or be compared to a drug treatment. So the pathway in these two cases are quite different because we are talking about a companion uh, type of uh, therapeutics versus, versus an independent uh, therapy. So a lot also depends on what is the function of the digital therapeutics. So is that a prevention or diagnosis or an actual treatment, which is uh, now gets it onto a level of a drug or device pathway versus is this a simple type of a monitoring tool that only does it communicates and provides information, gathers that information, but does not really lead to a change in patient's health. So those two would, would lead to also a different pathway. And as Karen mentioned, unfortunately, the process is extremely slow. So, uh, and however it is starting, and th there are changes, and uh, because there are more and more digital therapeutics coming out every day, uh, that payers do have to deal with that. So depending on what, what I said before of what type of a digital therapeutic it is, the evaluations are typically done by either a P&T committee or a medical technology committees. So uh, very few to none develop their own committees. And as a matter of fact, many payers as per the survey uh, actually are interested in or planning to develop its own process at this point or their own bodies that are going to review. So they're trying to currently, the way it looks is they're trying to fit a digital therapeutics into the currently available processes for reimbursement. So uh, the decision to the committee is, is in, basically depends on the which committee will be reviewing this, will depend on the type of the technology. Uh, very important thing to note that none of the pairs are going to review it or consider it for reimbursement unless it is prescribed by a physician. And, and the other thing has an NDC number. So has a coding ability. So in US, the reimbursement is very, very, very closely linked with coding system. And unless the FDA granted it uh, a, an approval and there is an NDC number assigned to that, that, that means that something that can be built as an entity or in a case when it is not an NDC, so when it's not an independent entity, maybe uh, that specific digital therapeutics is going to be, the listing of it would be required for the contracting purposes. So it's involved with the contracting. So actually it's not the type of pairs, it is the types of groups that will be reviewing it. And following from that, what, 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 what is the evidence that would be required? And uh, currently we have not seen examples from ICER 
or from the Blue Cross Blue Shield Evidence Street reviews. It seems that they're quite busy with the current agendas that they have and uh, over, even, I would say, overwhelmed with what they have right now. And of course, the question is whether the healthcare reform uh, would make a change to that and give them more power, more people, more budgets and so forth. And then they'll have the time to look at digital therapeutics. But this is all hypothetical at this point. Uh, it is, I do not think that in the next few years, it's going to be likely that any payers would uh, create new bodies or processes more, more than what Express Scripts uh, has done. But I think they are really, really looking to fit this into currently available processes. Okay, thank you. I think that gives us all the kind of, uh, let's say, difficulties as well in terms of application and acceptance, maybe from the payer's perspective. I mean, my understanding now, as you explained it, I think is it's especially trying to, let's say, apply existing kind of systems, processes to the digital health area as well. And also the kind of same institutions which are basically already available. Um, when I now, let's say, pick one of those, let's say, payers in a way, which is, I think, um, especially maybe from European view, I think we're more looking to the private plans, I think, uh, when looking to the US. Um, would you say this is exactly the same, so same applicability as you have just said, or and how would potentially kind of new digital health applications uh, be covered, so the process is more interesting, into kind of private plan there? So the process that currently is used for digital therapeutics, so that's what we have seen right now, as, as, as I said, uh, fortunately and unfortunately is the current process is used. So most private payers are going to review it within three to six months of launch. And they, or if they don't really say three to six months, they're gonna apply whatever the currently existing timelines they have for their review of pharmaceuticals and devices. And they go to look at it currently as, is it more like a pharmaceutical or is it more like a device? They're really not trying to create its own group at this point. And uh, having said that, what the private payer most likely approach would be is that they would put it through the tier system in the, in the US based on the medical claims that those, those digital therapeutics can have based on their label what would be in the FDA approved label and based on their function. As I mentioned before, is this going to be a displacement of a therapy of a device or is this an, an um, uh, add-on to what already has? So, but still they're going to look at medical claims and they're going to try to align it with all the standards for required clinical evidence that is required that is currently exist. What that means is they are applying the, the requirements for evidence on safety and efficacy based on the other standard requirements for this specific disease. They are looking to define an appropriate patient population to, to try to be very specific about that. They also trying to look at what clinical trial data exists, and they highly, highly interested in looking at the clinical trial data. And their main concern with what they're currently getting from the digital therapeutics is that clinical 
trial date is not robust. There's many bias that could be introduced because let's face it, if there is an app, like Karen said, that that uh, that does something for the, for the patient, with the patient, that potentially a clinical trial, many of those are not randomized controlled and do not provide that good control arm. And also in the content of the clinical trial, maybe patient gets a lot more attention. The visits are much more often to collect that data. And uh, so there's there's a lot of bias. But let's face it, we all had to deal with that on the therapeutics, on, on the device markets. So an RCT is still a golden standard here. And it's still expected by payers for these therapeutics. They're looking at an RCT in an appropriate patient populations, and, and uh, they are looking for that approved label by the FDA and what are the claims there. They are trying to see what other evidence they could get, and many of them voiced, uh, uh, based on the surveys that, that were conducted recently, voiced their interest in looking at the real-world evidence data because that obviously will remove the bias of the RCT with more often visits and higher attention to patients um, and then provide a much larger scale. Uh, so there's, there's a higher interest, I believe, in real-world evidence than even looking at that evidence for the traditional therapeutic options. But at this point, I do not see how um, we could avoid the traditional pathway, which means we have to develop a dossier. We have to start the development as early as possible because if you don't plan on that development of the evidence dossier, you may not understand all, all the gaps and potential gaps in the data that will exist when that FDA approval comes. So uh, similar recommendations as for non-digital therapeutics would be that you need to gather the data as early as possible. And preference is still to conduct the clinical trials that use validated outcomes, especially in the cases where this is a self-standing uh, um, digital therapeutics, which potentially will compete with the therapy or with a device, which in this case, they would like to see a randomized controlled trial. To, to demonstrate the safety and the efficacy. Uh, there's a lot of additional issues that digital therapeutics introduce because they want to understand what are the HIPAA compliance implications because now we are collecting data digitally, how much of the patient information is gonna go beyond, what, what potentially could be the leaks of this information. So that kind of adds complexity. But at the end, what we do not see is lesser requirements for this. Uh, you know, we we do see still requirements for the traditional things. Okay, I think that, that gives a kind of clear plan as well and a kind of, I think, clear route, I would say, if I would be a developer of digital health strategy or a health application, I think. Um, very good. Um, changing a bit the gears here, um, to my understanding, Medicare cannot cover digital health applications due to legislations as they define the treatment. Um, so is, is this still true? And might this potentially also change with respect, maybe even 
to kind of new reforms around the Biden administration? Well, that's that's a really great question. And a lot of things are changing in that area right now. So, of course, at the moment, all of the governments around the world have some some major healthcare priorities with, with the pandemic. Um, and certainly that's the case for the Biden administration here. Um, but at the same time, I think the way that the pandemic has uh, has unfolded has brought us to thinking about new ways to deliver care um, where digital therapeutics may play an important role. Um, any way that we can provide high quality medical care remotely, especially to elderly patients. So Medicare is the health plan for elderly Americans over 65. And so especially when you know we're thinking about this pandemic, as well as even, you know, future pandemics, making sure that we have good ways to ensure that they're getting good care, even if they can't be on site in a clinic is, is especially critical. So even though digital therapeutics might not seem like the top priority right now, in other ways, they're actually very much front of mind. So, um, yeah, and so, you know, given that patients who are on Medicare are past working age in general. Uh, they wouldn't receive digital therapeutics from their employers. Often they're on a relatively fixed income. So paying for these things out of pocket themselves is not really viable. So, you know, for certain digital therapeutics, really being able to be covered by Medicare is, is essential in terms of their viability. And especially if we think about conditions such as dementia or osteoarthritis that are going to be much more prevalent in the elderly to, to give manufacturers an incentive to develop digital therapeutics for these um, indications. There definitely needs to be a way to get them paid by Medicare. So um, yes, at the moment, Medicare does not cover digital therapeutics because just it's almost like a loophole in the legislation that these digital therapeutics just don't fall into any of the covered categories for Medicare. So there would need to be a change in legislation in order to allow Medicare to cover digital therapeutics. Now, in the last few weeks of the Trump administration, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services prepared some new rules, which is called the Medicare Coverage of Innovative Technology, or MCIT. And these rules actually will be going into effect on uh, I think it's March 15th, 2021. And so far there's there's no specific move to, to stop that. It looks like generally, you know, this one is, is going to go forward for now. So MCIT would allow for four years of coverage for any medical technology that's classified as a breakthrough device. Okay, so if the manufacturer establishes that um, their device is, is worthy of breakthrough designation. And if, uh, if this is awarded to them, then they can choose any date after they, after they receive that breakthrough designation to start receiving Medicare coverage for four years. So the criteria to receive that Medicare coverage for four years are that the digital therapeutic needs to be reasonable and necessary, and that 
also means that it needs to be considered safe and effective, FDA approved, and appropriate for Medicare patients. It needs to be within some type of standard medical practice. It needs to be relevant to the patient's needs. It needs to meet patients' medical needs. It needs to be ordered by qualified providers. And it needs to be at least as beneficial as existing alternatives. So what this says is that this isn't just a free-for-all that you can develop an app and get it paid by Medicare for four years. It means that you have to go through a process to demonstrate that this is a safe, effective product that will um, you know, fit within standard medical practice, that it will be overseen by qualified medical providers, and that it's providing some benefit to patients in line with other treatment options that exist. Okay, so, and another aspect of the MCIT ruling is that if a digital therapeutic is being covered by commercial insurance, then Medicare would also cover it, um, again, for four years. So what happens at the end of four years? At the end of those four years, um, then Medicare could either continue or deny the coverage, but during that time, the developer is going to need to put together an evidence base to support their case with Medicare. So it wouldn't just be a rubber stamp at the end of four years to keep covering it. They would need to use those four years to pull together you know, real world evidence, outcomes, uh, as Anna was talking about doing some randomized clinical trials, just really developing some solid clinical and health economic evidence showing that this product is effective and does what it claims to. So, um, so basically what, you know, some people have compared this MCIT ruling to almost a subsidy for medical devices, because instead of, you know, because right now there, there was not a route to get covered through Medicare, and this route gives them four years of coverage. So in a sense, it is a subsidy, but it needs to be um, for those devices that are actually recognized as truly innovative and breakthrough. Um, and so these devices will get earlier reimbursement than those that are not established as breakthrough. And, you know, they do get that, that four-year period. Um, and so it is providing incentive to move other manufacturers forward, other developers in um, innovating, particularly in that digital therapeutics area. So, you know, as I said, this was a this was a ruling that was put forth in the in the final days of the Trump administration. It's not seen as a particularly um, partisan type of ruling. It you know it it does provide some incentives to industry and manufacturers. Um, so, in terms of what might the Biden administration do relating to digital therapeutics. Um, you know, as I said, nobody is is trying to veto or stop the DCIT from going forward. It seems that there's generally some some positive feelings about expanding access to innovative medical devices. Um, but one thing that we are expecting to see as as Biden's administration is able to start moving forward on some of their healthcare reforms and initiatives is that there's going to be that closer look at value-based pricing mm -hmm. of all sorts of medical treatments. Um, so that would include digital therapeutics and also pharmaceuticals and everything else. And so there probably will be 
more emphasis on independent bodies that are assessing uh, the value of, of treatments and establishing prices based on what they assess as values. So ICER is one organization in the US that could provide some of that input as a, as a third party, you know, independent pricing assessment agency. There may be others that, that grow if there's increasing demand for that type of, um, of work. But I would expect that in the next few years, we're going to see that, you know, okay, now we've, we've established this four-year, you know, open reimbursement period for innovative digital therapeutics, but then maybe we're going to start having a little bit of control on what those prices might be, and that might be based on, you know, cost effectiveness and, um, you know, looking at the, at the costs and offsets for any particular treatment. So it should be an interesting couple of years to see where this goes in the U.S. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's just see how it goes and in which ways uh, it goes. But I think uh, that was really very good insights. I think um, I learned a lot and I think also everybody else listening to it, I think will probably learn a lot around the very heterogeneous complex system, but also in this kind of episode, obviously applied to the digital health um, in the U.S. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Karen. That was great. And then talk to you, hopefully, as well, to other areas in the future again. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was an episode of MAP, the market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. MAP is available every second week with a new episode, so watch out. And in case you might have questions, contact me directly and or visit our website on www.marketaccess-pricingstrategy.de.